Today we're going to talk about church multiplication and look at both some biblical and practical reasons that we want to be involved in biblical multiplication. So we're taking a week off today of our uh, series in 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians next week, so don't be too disappointed in that. But today we want to look at this. And by the way, after the service uh, today, we are having a potluck. Uh, Our church has some of the best cooks in the city, and so you need to stay for that. And if you're a guest, don't feel like you have to bring anything. Just come be our guest and stay. We're going to have a short meeting afterwards to kind of explain to you some details about launching a campus in Leavenworth. It's 25 minutes from here. And if you are a member and you just forgot about it and you didn't make anything and you feel really bad about coming without getting, run over to Price Chopper and get a bucket of, I don't know, egg salad or potato salad or something. You know, bring it and just come be a part of it. Don't don't not come because you didn't bring something, all right? No reason to not come. So come, we're going to have lunch, and then we'll have a short meeting afterwards and take you through just some things that we're going to be doing and looking forward to God doing in Leavenworth. But we want to take you through, first of all, the biblical reasoning and the practical reasoning uh, for being a multiplying church. We, Fellowship of Grace, is an intentional church plant. And I say that because 13 and a half years ago, we planted Fellowship of Grace, started Fellowship of Grace as an autonomous church by intention. And what I mean by that is we were not a church split disguised as a church plant. Now, if you, if you are a church-going person, you know that sometimes in a church, people get angry at each other and they decide, well, we can't stand to see each other's faces anymore. And so they decide they're going to break apart. And sometimes they call that a church plant. That's not a church plant. That's a church split. All right? And we are never in favor of church splits unless a pastor's teaching heresy or there's immorality going on in the church. But... We are not a church split disguised as a church plant. We are an intentional church plant. Also, this is not a church started out of rebellion. A bunch of people didn't get together and say, well, nobody in church, nobody else in town is doing it right, so we're going to show them and we're going to do it the right way. And, you know, none of that kind of goofiness was going on. We just felt like there was a group of people not being reached, and we wanted to reach them. And so this church started as an intentional church plant, actually out of Northland Baptist Church, which is out on Wacomas uh, Road. Uh, Now, models that fall under this kind of church planting or multiplication heading, uh, there's several different models. We were an autonomous church, which means on day one, we were a separate, uh, independent uh, body of Christ. We were autonomous. We were kind of alone. Now, there were churches supporting us and praying for us and some giving us some money at the very beginning to help us get started. But we, uh, you know, weren't under anybody's authority. We were an autonomous church plant. There are other types of church plants or multiplication, like uh, churches with campuses. So a church actually multiplies by starting a campus in another location with a campus pastor who actually preaches live at that campus, but the two churches are really one church worshiping in two locations. There are also multi-sites that have uh, video pastors, so maybe the, the, the lead pastor preaches at the mothership, but all of the other, you know, all of the other locations get to watch it on video or watch a video of last week's or whatever. So there's all these different kinds of models, but they all kind of fall under the heading of church planting or multiplication. Now, we have generally in this church talked about autonomous church planting because that's how we got started, and that's how we've attempted to plant in the past. But this time, we're going to start a campus, uh, which is a little bit different. And if you want to know why, uh, that's what we're going to cover today at the potluck. All right, so be sure and come to that and see kind of why we're doing a little bit different now this time. 
But right now, I want us to look at the biblical and practical reasons for doing it. Because if there's no biblical reason for doing it, folks, we probably should just uh, not waste the time and energy and effort and not do it. But there is a really sound biblical reason. And so let's look at what the Bible teaches us about church planting. And we see a few principles here. And the first is this. The Great Commission lays a foundation for planting and multiplying churches. The Great Commission lays a foundation for planting and multiplying churches. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And by the way, if you don't memorize scripture and you want to get started memorizing scripture, this is a really great one to start with. Well, probably Jesus wept because that's a, you, know, you can memorize that pretty quick. But this is the second one then, all right? It's this one. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, on the surface, you might say, well, this verse doesn't say anything about church planting or multiplying churches. It doesn't say anything about any of that kind of stuff. But I want us to look and see what the apostles did after hearing this. Because a great way to interpret what they heard, what they thought Jesus meant by this, is to actually see uh, what it is that they did. Okay? First, we need to look at the commission clearly because it was stated by Jesus and it answers three questions. Where to go, what to do, and how to do it. All in this one statement. All right, so let's take that apart just a little bit. First, we see where. It says to go. And what this word actually means, it doesn't mean necessarily to go from this place over to that place. It doesn't necessarily to say go somewhere else. What it really says is as you are going, Okay? As you're going about your daily routine, as you go to quick trip uh, after lunch today, after the potluck, do these things. As you go to the PTA meeting this week, do these things. As you go to work this week, do these things. As you go to your neighborhood, uh, you know, picnic or whatever next Sunday, uh, do these things. It's as you are going, as you are doing life, do these things. What we know it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean to stay. It doesn't mean to stay put for sure. The second thing we see is what? Jesus said to make disciples of all nations. Now, a disciple, by uh, just definition, is a follower. It's, it's somebody who emulates somebody else, okay? In fact, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 11, when we get there very, very soon, I think it's coming up, 11.1, 1, uh, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, he's not saying don't follow Jesus, all he's saying is, hey, guys, I, I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I am, I am following Jesus with everything I am. If, if you want to see what it looks like, come and do what I do. Come and see what I do. Emulate me because you'll be emulating following Jesus. And so that's what a disciple is, is somebody who follows and emulates. Uh, and he says, do this with all the nations. Now, that's a big, tall order. He's saying every people group around the world, every group of people that would see themselves as a, as a separate group, with all of those, those groups of people, make them disciples, followers of Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Well, Jesus talks about that too. He says, baptize them and then teach them to observe everything that he commanded. So first, he says, lead them to Jesus, give them the gospel, tell them the good news, news that I died on the cross to save them, tell them that, and then when they commit to it, baptize them. Because that baptism is a symbol of their new birth. 
that, you know, we don't baptize babies here. We don't baptize people just because they turn six or 12 or 13 or one of the, you know, we baptize people here who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. They've crossed that line of faith. They have decided that they know the only hope they have for eternity is to put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save them and to forgive them of their sins. Those are the people that we baptize. And so Jesus is saying, first baptize them and then teach them. But look very carefully what he said. He didn't say teach them to know. He said teach them to observe. There's a big difference. A lot of churches teach people to know. Uh, They're about just, you know, regurgitating information about God. That's not good enough. Jesus said, no, 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 it's not about teaching us just to know. That's part of it. But we know so that we can do. We learn so that we can become. The reality is Jesus is saying, no, baptize them when they give their life to me, but then teach them to observe, teach them to live out everything that I have commanded. That's a big, tall order. So with those things in mind, what Jesus said, let's look what they did early on, because that's what we're going to see, really what they understood. And we start in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, who's the who there? Uh, Peter had just got uh, through with a great uh, rip-roaring sermon about the gospel, about the fact that Jesus died for them. He had just gotten through preaching this great sermon, and then what happened? 3,000 people said, I'm in. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe that, that he died on the cross to save me. I'm putting my faith and trust in him. And they came forward and they were all baptized, 3,000. That's a, that's a good afternoon, okay? And there's, by the way, there's several historical records there in the book of Acts of thousands of people at a time coming to know Christ as their savior. They were doing what Jesus told them to do. Well, let's see what else they were doing. Because right after this, verse 41, so they've just been baptized. Now, what does it look like to observe or to obey or to follow through on everything that Jesus taught. Look at verses 42 to 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we see them functioning in a manner that we would probably define as a church. We don't have time to just, you know, take this apart a little bit, but they were worshiping together. They were in awe. That's about the worship. They were worshiping. They were fellowshipping. They were breaking bread together. They were taking care of each other's needs. They were looking out after each other. They were doing all the things that we would look at and go, well, that looks like a church. See, folks, a church is not a building. Never has been. It's not a legal organization because the state says they're a church. It's not a group of people that pool their assets so they can do some kind of ministry thing. A church is a group of people functioning as a church. Uh, think about it this way. If you said to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good softball player, but I, I don't really play on a team or anything, and I, uh, I don't have a position that I generally pro- play, and uh, you know, I don't have like any jerseys or team identifications, and uh, you know, I, we don't ever, I don't ever play anybody, 
I would say, well, you're not a softball player. You don't, you don't function as a softball player. However, if you came to me and said, you know, I've, I've never really been a softball player, but I, I do kind of get together with my friends every weekend, and in the summer and fall, we, we play softball with the same people, and I always seem to play shortstop because they think I'm best there, and, and we, we bought all these matching shirts so that we could kind of tell that we're on the same team, and we get together on the weekends to play against other people with matching shirts, and guess what? You're a softball player. You see, you're not a softball player because of how you define yourself. We aren't defined by what we say we are. I don't care what the culture tells you, all right? We are defined by who we are and what we do. That's what defines us. That's what gives us uh, uh, some way to be defined. A church is not defined as a church because it says it's a church. It's, it's, It's a church because its functionality dictates that it is indeed a church. In this passage, these people may not have had uh, any idea that they belonged to First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. They may, not, they may not have had any idea. Nobody had a business card. There wasn't a sign out front. But they were definitely a local New Testament church operating as a church. You see, a church, by definition is a local expression of the body of Christ under biblical leadership that participates in corporate worship. It practices the Lord's Supper and baptism. It spreads the gospel. It serves an encouraging ministry to one another. And it serves its community. Now, there are some other incidental things that it does, but those are the main things that a church does. So any group of people that's getting together to do those things, they are indeed a church. So the disciples understood from the Great Commission to act like a church. Even though it didn't say, go plant a church, be a church, that's what they did. But what about the going? They weren't really doing that. Because frankly, folks, when you get into a good Bible-believing church and you're part of a family, you know, around here we call it the Fog family, and we really are a family. And by the way, that family's open. So you're welcome to it. They weren't going anywhere. They weren't doing the going part. So God helped them. You see, it's never God's intention for us to sit around and just work on our own church, to be fully and completely internal. You know, I mean, it's great to be a part of this church. I love this church. I'm glad I'm part of the Fogg family. But, you know, frankly, if we get to the place where all we do is sit around and pray and stare at each other's belly buttons and sing kumbaya all day, we've, we've ceased to function as a church. And so God helped them out. And he did that by allowing persecution to scatter the church and multiply it. He basically was saying, hey, you don't want to go? You want to hang around because it's so wonderful? Well, guess what? I'm going to make you go. So look what it says in Acts 8.1. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Something happened on this day. A man named Stephen was stoned to death because he testified that Jesus rose from the dead and, and that people needed to commit to him to be saved. Stephen gave this great testimony of how God had saved him. And men decided, religious men, decided to stone him to death. And so they laid their... Uh, uh, coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who would become the Apostle Paul. But they laid their, their coats at his feet and on that day, the persecution really started. 
And there arose that day, I mean, it came up that day, that they began persecuting the church. And so if they weren't going to go, God was going to help them go. Now, while God may not have caused the persecution, the reality is he allowed it to, to happen to accomplish his purpose. There's a great, great understanding for us there, folks. We, we need to be involved in God's plan because God is always directing his church whether we are paying attention or not. I'd like to pay attention and be in on the plan instead of ignore and do our own thing and have him try to force it on us. So we're always looking for where God wants us to, to Im, have an impact, how God wants us to expand his kingdom, how God wants us uh, to be involved. And in fact, in, down this hallway, you'll see our six core values. And one of them is that we are kingdom thinkers around here. Uh, we, we don't think about just our little kingdom here. We think about the big kingdom, the kingdom of God. But we see here that God allowed this persecution to scatter the church and begin to make them go. Then we see that the church sends Paul out, and this is several chapters later. And by the way, if you've missed all of this, uh, if, you, if this whole story is, is new to you, you can go back to our website at uh, fogkc.com. We preached completely through the book of Acts a few years ago, and you can go back there and see all these sermons. But look what it says uh, happened, because the church decides to send out Paul, who plants and establishes churches in at least 14 cities, uh, probably up to 20, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, and we also don't know how many churches in each city. So if you remember when he wrote the, uh, when we were talking about the, the book of 1 Corinthians, his letter to the churches in, in Corinth, he wrote it to the churches in Corinth, not one church in Corinth. So there were probably several local churches in that city. It was a rather large city. And so we see here that Paul went and planted and established churches. But look how he was sent out in Acts 13. Verses 2 and 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to the whole congregation, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We see here that Paul and Barnabas were sent out as a team to go and do the Great Commission, to make it happen. Now, by the way, we never see the disciples sent out by Jesus or the church alone but always in groups of two or more, uh, but usually in, in a group of two leaders or at least multiple leaders and then with other people with them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why when we look at church planting statistics and we see individual church planters that we call parachute in, like some guy gets it in his heart and his mind that, hey, God's calling me to San Francisco, so I don't know anybody there, I don't know any churches there, I don't, I'm just gonna move to San Francisco and plant a church. Those things fail about 80 to 90% of the time. Uh, because that's really not God's plan, as we see here uh, modeled for us. Now, we don't ever see Paul say, hey, I'm going to go plant churches, or I'm going to go help us multiply. He doesn't say those words. But the results of his witnessing and his discipling, when he went into a city and did those things, was exactly that. Churches sprang up. Groups of people who had committed their lives to Jesus and were growing in their relationship go, hey, you know what? We should be it on Sundays. Yeah, we should do that. We should, we, should, we should love one another. We should do all these things that Jesus taught. And as they began to do the things that Jesus taught, they sprung into being a church. It's kind of the natural reaction. It's kind of the natural outcome of doing the Great Commission. So the church, which Jesus said that he would build, by the way, 
He's building it. He's just using us. And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it is being built around the world today, just like Jesus said, by people who are willing to multiply or to plant churches. The last principle I want you to see from God's word is this. Paul followed God's leading on where to plant and establish churches. Now, the passage we're going to look at, I think, is very interesting because in this passage, Paul has a plan, and he's beginning to execute it, and God directs him. And so it's, it's very rare in reality. I think sometimes in certain parts of Christianity, you know, pastor will go up into an ivory tower and come back with God's 10-year plan and he'll announce it to everybody and we'll try to execute God's 10-year plan, okay? Uh, you don't kind of get that from us around here because we think God reveals his will a little bit at a time, one step at a time usually. And, and so as you're following him, he's directing you. It's not like we come back with some uh, wonderful blueprint that's God's perfect will for this church. It's like, hey guys, God wants us to be on mission. He wants us to be doing this. Let's go do it. And here's a way to do it. And then he turns us and moves us. And, and, and we've done several things over the years where we've moved. We haven't changed the mission, but we've been moved by God to do something a little different than what we had suspected up front. Look what, Paul ha- what happens to Paul here in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. It says, and they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia. By the way, this is Paul and his church planting team having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, God didn't give Paul the whole big 10-year blueprint. He gave him the next step. He said, hey, come to Macedonia. Don't go into Asia. Don't go northeast into Asia. Instead, go over to Europe. It's the opposite of Paul's plans. I mean, Paul had to be a little bit discouraged here. Uh, 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 several times in this passage, God stopped him. The Holy Spirit stopped him from doing what his plan was. I'm sure they, they had explained to the team what their plan was and where they were going and how they were going to do it. You know, he'd, he'd probably put together this incredible PowerPoint presentation and he'd showed it to them and got them all excited. And then God says, nope, that's not the plan. But I, I'm, I'm going to use you since, since you're going. That's a big principle, folks, to following God. A ship in the harbor that's not moving, you can turn that wheel, you can move that rudder as much as you want, and it won't even move that ship. But a ship that's moving, a ship that's on mission to go somewhere, that ship with just a touch of the rudder gets steered. And that's how God uses people, individuals, and churches. We should be on mission. As long as we're on mission, God will guide us and lead us. If we're just sitting back going, eh, we got other things to do, We won't see his hand working in us. But when Paul's plan was to go into Northeast Asia, God directed him to go instead to Europe, which was really interesting because now as you look back at it, after knowing what we know, the gospel spread like wildfire because of civilization and communication and travel really being decades ahead in Europe than it was in Asia. So the gospel was able to spread so much faster by following God's plan. You see, God's church needs to always be looking for where he is leading us through circumstances, impressions, whatever, and and be taking those steps to follow him. 
In Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God, he says this. He says, God is always at work around us. We spend too much time creating our plans and inviting him into our plans. We should spend more time looking around and seeing where he is working and joining his plans. I think that's good for us to think about. So the bottom line for why planting and multiplying churches is important is because it's the complete result of fulfilling the Great Commission, folks. It is the complete result of doing that. And by the way, individuals don't plant churches. Churches do. This church got planted well because even though I as an individual had this vision and and dreamed to to plant a church, a church took me under kind of their belt a little bit and and said, hey, come under our umbrella and we'll we'll invest in you, we'll help you, we'll we'll teach you, we'll love you, we'll resource you, all those things. And so churches plant churches. So we want to always strive to be a biblical church that multiplies itself in every way that results in more local expressions of the body of Christ. That's the biblical reason, and that's enough. That would be enough right there. But I want you to also see that there are practical reasons. Because here's the thing, folks. God's word is so practical. Everything that we see in God's word as a a theory, or we we view it as a, a concept or a theology, it works out in real life. Amazing how that works, isn't it? And so when we see that God has this, this uh, theological view of, of this uh, great commission to go and plant new churches, to go and multiply churches, for churches to multiply themselves, we see that there are also a lot of really practical reasons for doing it. I want you to know that the practical reasons alone would not be enough for us to do it. The only reason we look at the practical reasons is because we see the fulfilling of the theological reasons that God has already given us. So here are the practical reasons. I'll go through them fairly quickly. First, new churches reach people faster than established ones do. There's no doubt about this. There's just no doubt. Every, every statistical uh, uh, survey you see shows that new churches reach people who are far from God faster than established ones do. New churches grow at an exponential rate. The longer a church is in existence without intentionality it will cease to grow. For new churches, usually uh, there's a new Christian, a new adult believer for every 20 to 25 people in a church. For established churches that are over 10 years old, uh, most of the statistics, and by the way, there's a dozen of them and they're not all exactly the same, but for most of them, it takes about 100 people to lead one person to Christ. Now, Fellowship of Grace, we're 13 and a half years in. We run about 200 to 250 people. And last year, we had 16 people receive Christ through the ministry here. We're way, way above the average, which is all to God's glory, because we're intentional about it. But for churches that don't stay intentional about it, you see that new people uh, receive Christ at a very uh, slow rate. Uh, Kind of uh, connected to that is that new churches generally attract more people that are far from God, while established churches mostly attract Christians. An interesting thing, when Fellowship of Grace first got started, and we were moving in and out of a comedy club every Sunday morning to have church, almost all of our guests were people that were unchurched. Because people that were kind of churchy, you know, they're like, church in a comedy club? That doesn't even make the pastor any funnier. Why would we go to that? That doesn't even make sense. And, and by the way, they have some really terrible people that, 
talk there on Saturday nights. Well, we don't hold them over to speak on Sundays, you know. It just it didn't appeal to them. But people who didn't know Christ were, were very attracted to that. But now, here we are 13 and a half years later, we've got a building, we've got a sign out front, you know, we got resources, we got this, and all of a sudden, the majority of our guests uh, are of two groups. One are people that you personally invite, which you should be doing, inviting people that are far from God, that's where we get most of those 16, or they're church people. They're church people looking for a church because they go, oh, look, there's a church, they got a nice sign, let's go see what that's about. Whatever, or they go on the website. They say that's got a kind of a cool website. They, I believe what they believe. I'm going to go. I'm going to go because I think I can fit in there. I'm going to go there. So the reality is, folks, that a church that's new attracts people that are far from God way more than we do. I don't know the last time that somebody came to Fellowship of Grace and said, "Hey, we just moved to town. Thought, you know, God's not really a big part of our lives. We should probably find a church. So we saw this one and we came here. That just doesn't happen very much." This doesn't happen very much. So this is another practical reason why new churches uh, are in, in some ways um, important. Three, churches that multiply must grow and multiply leaders and ministers. Listen, as we commit to multiplying in different locations, we need double of almost everything. Think about that, okay? We, we need children's ministries in both locations, we need first impressions, which are the people that make you feel welcome when you come. We need them in both locations, which means door greeters, you know, people to talk to you when you get in there, all kinds of uh, offering counters in both locations, worship teams in both locations, video and audio technicians in both locations. I mean, we need a lot of stuff double. The reality is deciding to multiply, deciding to fulfill the Great Commission forces us as a church to encourage everyone to take their next steps. That's another one of our core values that's on the wall out there, next steps. Hopefully, you're involved in ministry here at Fellowship of Grace if you're a member. About 80% of our, of our members are involved in some kind of ministry, which is sky high from the average. Congratulations, you guys do really good at this. But it's not enough just to do something. We want to help you. If you didn't see this on the doors as you came in this morning, between the two front doors, it says, helping you fulfill God's dream for your life. That's what we want to do. We think God's, got, God's put some kind of potential in your life. We want to help you grow and live up to that potential. So if you're at a place now where you're serving once a month in a children's ministry, maybe it's time to take your next step and say, you know what, I could probably do that almost every week in this service because we have two services. I could go to the other service. Maybe, maybe you're not serving at all and you say, you know what, it's time for me to take on some responsibility around here. I get, I get blessed by this church a lot. It's time for me to grab an oar and start rowing with the team. Maybe uh, you're serving faithfully in a ministry and you realize that we're going to need leaders at both locations. And you say, maybe it's time for me to take my next step. I should probably talk to one of the pastors and say, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready for some responsibility. This will help our church. Number four, established churches that multiply typically remain missional. Listen, as churches become more established, they generally turn inward. We, a church gains enough people that they're like, we just got to deal with the people we got. 
We've got to disciple them. We've got to help them. We've got to deal with their families and their struggles. And their, you know, we just got so much stuff to do ourselves, we can't turn outward anymore. But starting a new workflow causes us to remain vigilant, finding ways to stay on mission and not drift. Well, let's be honest. There's probably almost no, very, 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 very little risk to us totally and completely changing missional direction. That's just not going to happen. But you know what happens is over time, organizations drift from the mission. You go to work. You know what I'm talking about, right? Organizations drift from their mission. And, and this is a way that, for, that will help us to basically stay and remain missional because we're starting this new work. We can't be totally turned inwardly because we've got to do this location, this this campus ministry, which is totally outward. Five, church multiplication forces established churches to focus and innovate. Not only do we have to stay focused on mission, but we have to focus and innovate new and different ways to do ministry. What works in one location may not work in another. We're not sure exactly uh, the location of where we're going to do our Sunday services there in Livermore. You know, we have a certain number of people that do certain things here. Those numbers may be totally different there. While, you know, we are a fairly similar culture, and I know it's in Kansas, it's way over the state line, you know, 25 minutes away, but it's not way too long. Uh, But that culture is slightly different. So it may take a little bit of different strategy and, 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 and kind of thinking process for us to, to try and reach those people. So devising plans to accomplish even the same mission in a different location and context forces us to be creative in our thinking. Get out of our normal box. Uh, get out, you know, one of the things that can kill a church faster than any other thing is for everybody to stand around and say, well, that's not how we do it here. That's not how we do it here. That's, here's how we do it here. Why do we do it here? That way, I don't know. We've just always done it that way. Now, when we started the church 13 and a half years ago, that was really cool because nobody said this is the way we do it until week two. <laughs> Literally, somebody came to me week two, because I was like, this is really cool. We don't have to deal with all this. You know? And week two, somebody says, Pastor, what are we going to do? The offering plates aren't where, where they were last week. I'm like, oh, here we go. We're all, we already got this great history that we can't overcome. You know, We can't do it. Listen, uh, church multiplication just forces us to be innovative in our thinking and find new ways to do ministry. And lastly, more churches reach more people, period, folks. That's just the bottom line. It's simple math. It's simple math. If Fellowship of Grace reaches 250 to 300 people here and another church reaches anyone at all, that's more. See how math works? It's not the new math, it's the old math. I don't know the new math, okay? But it still works. Two churches reach more people than one does. Now, we value and want to remain kingdom-focused. If we ever get to the place, folks, where we are only focused, listen to me, only focused on what God is doing between these four walls, we have begun our decline and our death is inevitable. We cannot be solely internally focused. Now, we are 50% internally focused. We want you to grow in your faith. We want you to be discipled. We want you to build relationships. We want you to have great fellowship. We want you to be partially inward focused because that helps us be healthy. But we also have to stay outwardly focused so that we're missional. 
Some of you may not know this, and I don't want to bore you with too many statistics, but 60% of Protestant churches in America have less than 100 in attendance. Do you know that? The vast majority of, majority of churches are less than 100 people. They're still good Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, you know, fellowship-loving, all of those things. They're, they're just great churches. They just have less than 100 Sometimes when we get to thinking about multiplying all these things, we think, well, we have to be a giant church. We have to be a big church to do that. Do you realize that only 2% of all churches in the country ever get to 1,000? 2%. 2%. So we can't wait until we're 5,000 people to fulfill the Great Commission. God wants us to do it now. So the goal to become a single church that reaches everybody is a much, much harder strategy than starting other churches. Think about it. Let's say over the next 20 years, if we say, hey, we're just going to stay inside these four walls and we're going to try to grow this church to be one of those 2% that's over 1,000 in the next 20 years, maybe that could happen. We, you know, God's got to do his part in thinking that and it just there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that. But the chances are, statistically, that's not going to happen. It could, but statistically, it probably won't. But what's the chance of starting 20 churches that reach 100? That's possible. That's really possible. That's doable, easily doable. And so we want to move forward with this, folks. But we want you to see this afternoon, and listen, I, I promise you there's not going to be some long, boring sermon after we eat lunch, because I can barely keep you, you know, before lunch. I don't even want to try that after lunch, all right? But we do want to share with you how you can be a part of this incredible thing of starting a, a, a church plant campus of Fellowship of Grace in Leavenworth. Now, I don't, I don't want this to become too human for us, because God's... God's doing his thing. I think I've made that clear today. We want to be a part of what God's doing. But if somebody from Northland Baptist Church came here today and sat through two services like this, I would hope that would give them a spiritual charge to go, man, I gave money to that. I I remember when they were 20 people sitting around Michael's living room. I, I, I went over there and served a couple of weeks and helped them. I went door to door with them and helped them. Look what God has done. And I got to take part in. Folks, I want all of you to experience that. I want all of you to experience that by helping getting started uh, this this church um, uh, campus in Leavenworth so that you can just enjoy being a part of God's plan. He will bless you for it. He will excite you about it. And someday if God shows up, and he mostly does, And we see people saved there and discipled there and their lives changed and we see their kids follow Jesus and their kids' kids follow Jesus. You'll get to sit there and go, man, I got to be a part of that. I remember going up there and just serving once a month in children's ministries. I remember doing this or that or filling in for people here when they went up there. I I was a part of all that. I want you to experience that, folks, because I think God wants to use you and me and our church in a way bigger way than we're thinking. In fact, I know it because God's word says so. His plans are far above our plans, folks. So whatever you've got in your head 
of how God is going to use you, his plan's bigger. I want to experience that, and I want to experience that with you. Come back for lunch. Actually, you don't have to come back. You can just stay. <laughs> I had to say that in the first service. Stay for lunch, and then uh, we'll have a, sh- a short presentation, answer as many questions as we can, and then we'll be done, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, for the guidance you give us. Father, thank you for, wow, just letting us be a part of your plan, for being used by you. It's just amazing that you use people like us whose lives are still less than perfect. We are still sinners. And yet you have transformed us. You have made us new by your spirit through faith in your son, Jesus. God, help us to just grab onto your plan. Help us to follow you that we might see you do great things. Lord, we know you have great plans for us. Help us to find them, to fit into them, to be a part of them, and see you do awesome things in this church, in this campus in Leavenworth. There are just so many people all around us who are far from you. God, help us be a light to show them who you are, that they might experience your grace and mercy and forgiveness as we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.